This is what happens. It indicates the non-frenzy feeding of a large squalus, possibly Angemanus or Asurus glaucus. Now, the enormous amount of tissue loss prevents any detailed analysis. However, the attacking squalus must be considerably larger than any normal squalus found in these waters. Didn't you get out of boat and check out these waters? Well, this is not a boat accident. There wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't gonna be easy. Bad fish. I'd like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cats. This shark, swallow you whole. Today, as part of our Jaws series, where we will be discussing every single movie in the Jaws franchise, we'll be discussing the original Jaws. Starring Roy Scheider. Is it true that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about ten feet from the beach? Yeah. And, and, and before people started to swim for recreation, I mean, before sharks knew what they were missing, that a lot of these attacks weren't reported. Richard Dreyfus. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks. And that's all. Robert Shaw. Mr. Hooper, I'm not talking about pleasure boating or day sailing. I'm talking about working for a living. I'm talking about sharking. Well, I'm not talking about hooking some poor dogfish or sand shark. I'm talking about finding a great white. And Murray Hamilton. For Christ's sake, tomorrow's the 4th of July, and we will be open for business. It's going to be one of the best summers we've ever had. Now, if you fellas are concerned about the beaches, you do whatever you have to to make them safe. But those beaches will be open for this weekend. Directed by Steven Spielberg. Amity Island has long been known for its clean air, clear water, beautiful white sand beaches. But in recent days, a cloud has appeared on the horizon of this beautiful resort community. A cloud in the shape of a killer shark. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Now, fellas, this is not the time or the place to perform some kind of half-assed autopsy on a beloved film. It's Gally in Glasgow. A man who's lining up to be a hot lunch. It's Patrick in London. I seen one in a rocking chair one time. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, welcome back, gang, and welcome back, listeners. And listeners, you may have noticed that there is only three of us. Everyone knows that Jaws has a trio of protagonists. Therefore, one of us had to stay on shore. And that was, unfortunately, Devlin, who I think is our, what, the representative of Quint's little manservant? He's he's Amity Island. (laughs) Yeah, he carries all of our gear he provided some <laughs> notes for the episode, but he's not coming to pursue the shark. So there we go. So Devlin, enjoy your holiday. We will see you next time. Um, you will be missed. But before we start and before I ask um, Patrick, Matt, about your history with Jaws, listeners, little disclaimer. I know just when you thought it was safe to listen to a film review podcast in the knowledge that Jaws has already been extensively covered elsewhere. We pop up like a yellow barrel. Yes, there are too many captains on this particular island, but we will try and add to the lore and explore aspects of the film 
that will make for a healthy discussion or whilst bringing our own perspective and views. So anyone who knows anything about the making of Jaws knows that the shark wouldn't work, which caused the production schedule to bloom from 55 to 159 days, which increased the budget from 4 million to 9 million. And those of you who know about the film's success will know that the release of Jaws in 1975 invented the summer blockbuster. It grows so much money at such speed that it completely transformed the way films are distributed, marketed, and covered by major media outlets. With all that said, we don't need to talk about that now, team. So we can put that all aside. Bloody hell, that, that sounded scripted, Gally. Writing. <laughs> don't reveal to the listeners that I wrote that and read it out. No, well said, Gally. Well said. That freezes up to be a bit more personal with our views now. So. Absolutely. It is a intimidating beast, a 25-footer. Let's be honest. Um, so I'm not talking about my, uh, my turd. Do you remember that? Uh, remember that? You're going to say your penis. No, no. Oh no. You see, there you go. There's our individual perspectives bleeding in. Oh yeah. Everyone's eyes are rolling back. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do team. Um, and obviously Patrick, you weren't here when we announced this. Um, but we are indeed going to do the entire series because I think we discussed this as a team and realized that actually as a franchise, Jaws is a fascinating beast. Hmm. The apples do fall far from the tree. Yes. And it's a, and it's a good example of how franchises were made really up until what the last two decades. That's probably when it's changed, but for every other franchise, they pretty much followed the Jaws, you know, blueprint of mm-hmm. getting considerably madder and some would argue worse as they go on. Sharks taking things personally. Ah, I've never seen any of the Jaws film apart from Jaws. I haven't seen any of the sequels. Right. That's a wonderful place to be, but we're going to ruin that. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to, we're going to do the whole gambit of them, but it's probably going to take us at least another three years. We love to announce things though. Yeah. We love an announcement. We hate yeah. to finish. <laughs> anyway, let's get to it. But before we do, Patrick, I'll start with you. Mm. Your very, very brief history with, with Jaws. Do you want it brief or do you want like a retelling of a really weird night out I had with Jaws? That one. Well, if you went out with a shark, I mean, I'd like to know how it went. Uh, well, for, the first time I ever saw it, I don't know, I, I, I definitely remember watching it with mum and dad. I can't quite fathom which age I was, but I remember being <laughs> like the, the, the thing that scared me the most was the head, uh, uh and in the hole. Ben Gardner's head. Yeah. Ben Gardner's head. That really shit me up. Um, and I remember, I don't know, the jaws has always just been, I've just taken for, I think until this week, I've taken for granted just that it's this masterpiece of a film that's held in high regard. And, um, I haven't seen it that all that much, I don't think. But a few, <laughs> about four years ago, the Birmingham S- Symphony Hall, I can't remember what the, what the location is, but there, there was, um, there was a screening with a live orchestra. Uh, in Birmingham and my friends all text is like should we go for a cultured night out and watch <laughs> Jaws with a live orchestra I'm like oh, okay and you know booked well in advance got the tickets realised oh, nearer the time oh crap it's a Wednesday night and I live in London and I'm working and I've got to get to I was actually working in High Wycombe and bloody hell London to High Wycombe is an expensive train ticket anyway anyway um, so to get to Birmingham 
I <laughs> stupidly I I went up. I took all my bags with me and my folders. I just started on this new production. It was a seven six episode thing called Summer of Rockets for BBC with Stephen Polyakov. Um the next morning, of course, at like nine AM was my first meeting with the director. And I was like, right, okay, go and see Jaws. I haven't seen my friends in a long time. Let's go up. Right. This would, this would be great. Saw the film. Great. Uh, the orchestra really, it was, um, had an interval as well. So have a drink and saw some more friends from Birmingham as well because I got ties there, uh, being a middle And <laughs> after the film, like, oh, that was great. Yeah, cool. Should we go back to, ah, oh, let's go, let's go and have a meal. We went for a nice curry. Just a quiet drink. Oh, Got to get an early night. My train's at like 6 a.m. That mm. yeah, yeah. I didn't get to bed till half four. Um, the night really got out of hand. <laughs> that quiet drink turned into an all-nighter. And then I got the wrong train back to London. Oh. And I was kicked off it somewhere. And I had to change the trains. And <laughs> apparently I'd left all the taps on in the bathroom. So they called me the wet bandits. <laughs> I left all the taps and the shower on. They're like, were you protesting? What was going on? Oh, I don't know. It's your calling card. And then the next morning, oh, when I went for this meeting with this director, um, he delayed it two hours and then he gave me all of three minutes. And <laughs> I could finally go home and just like, recover from the stupid night out so that was i blame jaws for that one galley um good night though had fun <laughs> awesome i kind of want to end on matt here so i'm going to go with you galley what's your uh history with the film uh well i don't want to give away my chum sandwiches but um this one is a, a lot like the films that have uh, hold a special place in my heart i watched it a lot with my dad and I think, um, I now see it as just like an, another example as why this movie stands the test of time is that my dad's English is, is pretty broken. He's, uh, he's a full, he's a full Greek. Um, so America, American movies can sometimes be, um, you know, if it's overly wordy or uh, complicated, intricate plotting, you know, you could never really watch a noir because it would probably, you know, the, the devil's in the details. Mm. Jaws, no problem whatsoever. And it's just testament to the movie's strength because he can watch it without really understanding a word that Quint says, mm-hmm. um, because it's, it's all told visually. Um, so I used to watch this a lot with him and I, I watched it way too young again, you know, fear of, I, I, I didn't want to go into a swimming pool and you can see the bottom <laughs> of a swimming pool, but yeah. there is something kind of primal about the idea of the unknown and being below the surface. And even though in a pool you can see your own feet, just when you're not looking. <laughs> mm. Something brushes against might, you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A, a, a leaf because there's a tree next to the pool <laughs> brushes past you. And uh, you get that horrible feeling that you're about to be uh, swallowed whole. So yeah, I, really it's as simple as that for me. I, I've watched it ever since. Um, you guys would have known that um, I had the poster on my wall uh, at university. Oh yeah. Uh, Partly down to Dawson's Creek, partly down to the fact that I'm a huge Jaws fan. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, there's, there, there really isn't a great deal besides the normal film student type backstory for Jaws. Um, all I will say is that, um, I'm a huge Steven Spielberg fan as well, which is no surprise to anybody. Um, but I do think, um, 
I'll probably say it now, actually. This isn't, in my opinion, his best work. Blasphemy. This isn't, this isn't indeed his best period. For me, and I'll pick it later down the line on the show, it's his sci-fi dystopian period, which is 100% Spielberg's strongest work. Wait, you're talking of, like, AI Minority Report and War of the Worlds? Absolutely, yeah, I am. In, in particular, AI, uh, controversial, uh, opinion, but I love AI. anyway, we will, we will talk later. Um, however, probably my favorite Spielberg film is yours. So just, just so everyone knows. Right. And right. that's it. That's my history. That's the, so that's a country. Okay. He's divided favorite from, from best period. Is that yeah, what you Yeah. Done? Yeah. Yeah. I am exactly doing that. Just like I would say that my favorite movie of Martin Scorsese's is Goodfellas. Right. But that's not his best work. So, okay. you know. You're like Zeke again. Bit. You're, you're a contradiction guy. I am. I am. And please stop bringing up my drug meddling <laughs> taste. <laughs> Devlin found that very funny, by the way. Let's put the, put the past where it, where it belongs. <laughs> um, so Matt, your history with yours? Um, well, this was the big one for me. I'm, I'm really intimidated to talk about it because it is my favorite. I always say this in The Shining and, and this is, you know, I think it's more fun than The Shining. I, I always laugh a lot more when I watch this one. So, uh, and I'm more moved by Jaws than I am The Shining. Although I think The Shining is technically superior in many ways. Again, we're, we're contradicting ourselves in, in many ways. We're, but you know, when, I, when we do that one, we'll talk more about The Shining. But, um, yeah, like I was intimidated by doing the Roger Moore stuff. And I, I think it's a clue that if you care about what you, about the film that's been picked, you should feel a little bit. Oh, you know, are we going to do this justice? So I hope we do. Uh, I saw this one very young. Uh, it's always been there. I can't remember the first time I saw it. Uh, I remember watching them all when I was a kid and not being into Jaws 3. I used to rate them all on the death of the shark. So, um, <laughs> whether, whether the shark exploded or got incinerated or electrocuted itself spoiler alerts patrick if you haven't seen these um but yeah i used to judge it on that just as a as a little boy um but it wasn't until the dvd era when the i think it was the first laser disc ever and they ported all the laser disc extras over to the dvd and it had all these making ofs and uh, I, I started to learn more about the first one specifically and that's when i realized the magnitude of it and I heard other filmmakers talking about it and how they would cite it as their favorite film. You know, the, the man who should not be named Brian Singer, uh, Kevin Smith, even Tarantino recently said it's probably the greatest film ever made. I think it's a oh, wow. filmmaker's film. And, uh, you know, I had a giant rubber shark that I used to play with in the bath. In proportion to the action force figures that I used to have, it was like the exact right size for, for Bruce the shark. So, uh, uh, and I think I had a Lego, Lego fishing, boat as well that i used to play oh, cool. was with uh, it wasn't an official one it was you know i had to make my own but it had like a little fishing uh, thing um i was feeling quite intimidated yesterday making my notes so uh, i don't know if i can uh, scratch the surface of how much this means to me but i'll i'll have a go the other thing that was weird was i didn't want to demystify it too much because it's a special film that i watch once every year and i've watched it four times leading up to this because it's on korean netflix at the moment and it looks beautiful so I just keep going back to it. Um, mm. Yeah. So yeah. Good luck to us. So Patrick, would you regale us with the plot for Jaws? 
Popular summer destination Amity Island is days away from 4th of July week, when a young woman, Chrissy, goes skinny dipping in the night and is brutally ragged around in the ocean and pulled under. Police Chief Martin Brody is called to her remains on this shore the next day, and where the medical examiner concludes her death is due to a shark attack, Brody proceeds to closing the beaches. But Mayor Larry Vaughan doesn't want to panic on their hands on 4th of July by yelling shark. It'll ruin the financial gain of this summer destination and convinces Brody to keep the beaches open, changing the death report to a boating accident. In view of a crowded beach and its children swimming in the sea, the dog goes missing and young Alex Kintner is thrown in the air by a shark and reduced to a pool of blood, leaving his mother distressed on the shore. The attack in plain view leads to a town meeting. $3,000 bounty to the man or men who catch and kill the shark that killed Alex Kintner on Sunday, June 29th in the Amsterdam Beach, riling up the amateur local fishing. Brody wants to close the beaches again, but the mayor insists for only 24 hours. When amidst the debate, cuts the sinister, cracker-chomping figure of Quint. For $10,000, he'll catch him, kill him, and deliver the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Matt Hooper from the Oceanographic Institute arrives to consult Brady, examines Chrissy's remains, and confirms it was a shark. A big one. Meanwhile, some locals catch a tiger shark and proudly display it on the harbour. Case closed, right? July 4th is saved and the beaches are open again. Hooper and Brady aren't so sure and open the tiger shark up, but no human remains are within. They decide to hit the water and find the monster where he's been feeding. Coming across a boat, Hooper dives under to get a better look, discovering the hull has been breached and the remains of local Ben Gardner and a giant shark tooth. Mayor Vaughan dismisses their findings and July 4th continues as planned. Visitors flocking to the town and the beach. Some kids pretend to be a shark but subsequently provide a distraction as the shark once again attacks and kills a man in the nearby lagoon where Brody's son Michael had been boating. Michael goes into shock and Brody convinces Vaughan to hire Quint. They're going to need a bigger boat but Quint... Brody, Hooper, set out to kill the thing, setting chum markers to attract the shark to follow. This perfect engine, this eating machine, a miracle of evolution, seemingly has it in for Quint, Brody and Hooper, circling them constantly as Quint harpoons the shark, attaching a barrel to it. But the 25-foot shark takes the barrel under and disappears. Is the shark teasing them? Some drunk camaraderie gives brief normality to their situation, but the shark circles back, ramming the boat and damaging the power. The chase continues as the shark terrorizes three aboard the orca. As they try to draw the shark to shallower waters, the boat dies and is slowly sinking. Hooper enters a shark cage, intending to lethally inject the shark, but the shark attacks once more, overwhelming Hooper, who hides as the shark engulfs the capsizing boat. Chomping at the bit, Quint sliding inevitably into the impending jaws as Brody clambers to survive. When will it be safe to go back into the water? Favourite for me so far. Oh, Very good. Good. Yeah, wonderful. Is that right? Yeah, perfect. You got a city voice there, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> You're in reading stories all your life. <laughs> I think, um, fortunately, just with the early morning and the position I was writing, and I haven't written it very neatly, and I struggled with a few of my, few of my own doctor's words there. But anyway. I'm going to start where you let off, Matt, when you mentioned it's a filmmaker's film, uh, one that is quoted regularly by other filmmakers. 
um, because I would like to know what you guys think of my assertion that this is probably, Jaws, I mean, is probably the greatest example of how an actual film is made and 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 it separates top tier filmmakers from those that can shoot a script, tell a story, ABC. Mm. And, and, and what I'm referring to is um, something that Spielberg said in a documentary, which listeners, if you've not watched it, it's currently on uh, Sky Documentaries, if you've got Sky. Um, it's from 2017. It's called... It's just called Spielberg. It's the HBO one, isn't it? Yeah. It is the, it is indeed the HBO one. Spielberg mentions, uh, right in the opening of the documentary that the more he feels backed into a corner, the more rewarding it becomes when he figures his way out. And that is, that is yours, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I've already mentioned before about, uh, all the stuff that's known about the shark not working, but the important stuff is, right. Okay. The shark's not working. What do we do about it? And, yeah. and a lot of it did fall on Spielberg's shoulders because, you know, there's a, there's that old auteur theory about, you know, do we put too much on one individual, the director, when the filmmaking process is a collaborative medium? But Spielberg, for those that don't know, is so hands on with the camera, with the framing, with every aspect of on set that I think in this case it is appropriate to say that Spielberg is largely responsible for the success of Jaws as we know it today. A, a bit, a bit like, um, a bit like Albert Pion, you know, in Cyborg, how he <laughs> backed into a corner and he succeeded. He was. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> absolutely. There are parallels in terms of the script because the screenplay was unfinished. I think there was, I heard there was two drafts by Benchley and then the Sackler and Gottlieb. And the script was being written throughout and they said that it was like a repertory theater. So every night they wouldn't know what they were filming. So they'd have to rehearse things with each other to try and solve the problems of the next day. So it was like this, you know, when they talk about um, a train is on the track and you have to keep building the, the track as the train is, is coming and the track is not complete. It like was, Gromit. It, <laughs> yeah, like Gromit. And uh, so it was kind of like that. And then the, all, there's all, all the obvious stuff with the shark not working and how he solved those problems visually. But yeah, it's it's a true test. I think he was 27 and it's an incredible what he pulled out 27. of the bag. Thing like I, I'm on a I'm on a 90 day schedule at the minute and that's already increased by five because of problems we've had. I'm not I'm not at liberty to discuss them at the minute. Um, and this schedule going from sorry Gully, I've forgotten 50 something to 150 55 to 159 uh, fuck it if that's just shoot days and not counting weekends I mean that is massive the way films are made I think it's kind of counterproductive but you have to have a budget you have to have a, a set number of shooting days and all these things but the best way to make a film perhaps isn't that way perhaps it's more organic and if, if you can shoot uh, sequentially as well, that would help so that something has a knock on effect on the next scene. But, I think it uh, helps as well in something like this that, that the three leads aren't like the rumored leads that they were going to be. Like, uh, if you had a Scott superstar, Heston, chat, yeah, if you yeah. was to have like a, a massive actor in it, I, I think you couldn't do this film because oh, your star well. power comes. Well, I do. I think your star power comes in and scheduling conflict. If they're on another film and, and things like that, mm. that, that really throws up a lot of problems. And I think like this may 
have been the best scenario for Spielberg and not having actors tied into other studio bits or everything. To keep people for that long, when, when yeah. you're only expecting 50 days, it's quite huge, really. And, you know, like, there's it's all on location. And to keep that location way above what you've agreed in, in your contract and, and your scheduled outline, you know, this is, like, huge, really. The other thing for me is that Spielberg's terrified of being fired every day, and yet he's still creating things that are, that are um, on screen are just amazing. I think if we could see the rushes to this, we'd be even more impressed because the rumor is they used every frame they could use of the shark. It was coming up in reverse. It was coming up tail first, he said on one talk show. And, it, you know, every frame that they could use is in the movie. So, you know, the, the way they managed to, to craft this, Werner Fields, uh, the editor as well, is just staggering, really. Spielberg takes those setbacks and turns them into triumphs. Yeah. So, you know, again, everyone understands everyone knows about the history the shark doesn't work you've mm. got to have everyone around you though galley like do you know like it's a real collaboration this is where you say grace under pressure so mm. you've got this young filmmaker who's fearing being fired every day you've got to pull all these different departments and they've all got to mm. follow your direction in the end he has to revisualize the movie in his head from the film that he probably storyboarded and mm-hmm. conceptualized when he thought he had a working creature now it's it turned out for the best because in a in a shark movie there's barely any shark and it in it, in it that's that works yeah. you know it's far more effective in retrospect we wouldn't change that it was you know. no no we would never change that mm. but you know if you made jaws today yeah having having a, a beautifully computer generated shark that looks all singing all dancing I don't think makes the movie better. I think like, like you said, the testament to Spielberg is that he wasn't fired and that the producers stuck with him and mm. had faith and they didn't bring in someone more experienced or they didn't fire him because they, he'd have made them believe in him mm-hmm. and he was the right man for the job. And the way he was tackling it, I think, I think you've got to understand that. He, you know, he, he'd convince them. I think Duel is crucial there as well, because uh, if you've seen Duel, it's, un, uh, you, you just can't doubt this guy. It's like he can deliver it. And whatever problems they're having, it's not because of him. It's the, it's the ocean. It's, it's, you know, filming on open water. It's the, it's technical difficulty. Well, look, look at Dreyfus as well. Dre- Dreyfus begged him to have for a role in this. And, mm. you know, if he showed his craft in technically in Duel and, and how he worked with actors in Sugarland Express. Yeah. And you've got Dreyfus begging him for a role as well. Like people wanted to work with this, this young guy at the time. Mm. Well, even, even Matt, the studio, uh, accepting his demands that they do shoot on the open water right you know ordinary ordinarily um if you think about okay this isn't a disaster movie but you think about some of the big studio movies of the time like a tower and inferno it's all shot on the back lot i thought you're going to say moby dick which was you know there was going to be there was going to be a scene where um quint was going to be introduced in the cinema watching moby dick laughing hysterically yeah laughing hysterically and that was going to be the thing like laughing at the bad special effects and that would have been a really cool meta kind of thing in in retrospect but i guess that was more like uh map paintings and wet sets and or like small wet sets i guess but spielberg knew didn't he well it, okay in his mind he's thinking well if you want something that's everlasting then it's got to be authentic it's got to be on the open water it, they have to feel like they are being chased at sea by a real shark you're not going to achieve that 
in the back lot. There was a quote. The Orson Welles one was, uh, the enemy of art is the absence of limitation, I think. So, you know, there's all these problems that need to be solved. And Peter Jackson, I think, he talks about it a lot too. I know Lord of the Rings was described as being like the the biggest gorilla filmmaking kind of venture. And Jaws was a little bit like that. It's almost like a student film on an enormous scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like just even just think about think about how logistically, you know, like Gally, we did film loading classes at uni. Look, imagine the amount of film stock they have to go through on that sequence, right? And imagine how, where where are they loading that film? If it's out of water, they're bobbing up and down. How are they getting it from boat A to boat B? And like the turnover, that just the communication side of those things. I heard about when one of the ships sank and uh, one of the mags got like completely, it's under the water and they rushed it off. And they, uh, the DOP just rushed it off and they washed it and they used every frame of it. It's in, in the movie, even though it was submerged. So e- even like the film itself was underwater. Yeah. I, I, I wrote down, Matt, like I, I like your perspective of what a modern audience takes from a film. And like, especially we look at 1975 and just how this film was made. I think like I did, you can take this film for granted. Just a, what a, a Marvel like a piece of filmmaking this is and all those things you look they're out water and I, yeah we've got experience and, and we, we know a bit more and i think about from a production side of things which i've tried to express to you there but fuck me mm. this this looked hard you, you've read everywhere that it was hard work but yeah. you, you know you read about the shark having difficulties now we, i think about loading the film stock and right how you know your act the, un- the things that aren't even discussed just, yeah. The, yeah, yeah you've got to you feed know, people I, you've got to yeah. feed people you've got to work to hours you've got daylight you've got to, what if the water's choppy what if what if you're running out of fuel and you have to get back in and you fall again you lose a couple of hours filming and you have to mm. fucking it's all going on and that's the youthful exuberance, I think, and an ignorance, I think, that Spielberg mm. probably, it's one of those where you don't know what you don't know. If he knows how troubling it's going to be to yeah. shoot on water, he probably doesn't. In the, in the, um, in the HBO Spielberg series, he talks about like, he didn't know that the water changes depending on where the sun is. So yeah. matching shots was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff that in, you know, we, I think we, we touched upon it in Waterworld with Kevin Reynolds, uh, the difficulties of shooting on, on open water. Mm. But obviously this is 40, well, God, it was 97, yeah, 40 years. 47 years. Yeah, 47 years. That is crazy speak. Um, and, and you're, you're right, uh, to kind of discuss those logistical challenges. One of the things I wanted to focus on though, a lot of people nowadays, modern audiences might get kind of wrapped around the, shark looks fake you know the old back mm. to the future stuff um discount discount the shark and the fact that it's 40 47 years old and of course it looks like a fake shark you can call it by its name can I? bruce <laughs> for, the, for those trivia fans out there bruce trivia fans out there yeah. my favorite take on his name is from peep show <laughs> jamie's like of course it's called jaws here comes jaws jaws the shark mind it doesn't get you with its massive jaws <laughs> <laughs> Very, good. very very good. Um, but what I wanted to talk about was, um, the, the fact that the, the shark not working kind of meant that Spielberg had to lean into suspense mm. being the key driver. How do I create it? How do I maintain it? And then how do I, you know, uncoil it? Essentially doing a Hitchcock. 
And I wrote in my notes, a changing of the guard. So I have a quote here from the then master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, um, from when he watched Spielberg's Jaws. He said, young Spielberg is the first of us who doesn't see the proscenium arch. And for those listeners that don't know what the proscenium arch is, I had to Google the it. definition yeah, definition is it's a theatrical term. Describes the frame that surrounds a stage space, separating the audience from the stage. So it helps you create the fourth wall, which is particularly appropriate for naturalistic productions. So that's in theatre. So if you think in film, we're talking really about framing, composition, editing. We're talking about visual wit. That's mm. what he's referring to. So yeah. this is the the art and language of cinema, which I know I'm starting to uh, sound like a pompous git, but <laughs> hear me out. Yeah. So, so Hitchcock is complimenting Spielberg on visual wit, and that is the acute understanding that a particular picture will communicate a particular idea that must mm. be more than what is being visualised. And the and the great example of that is. Opening kill with Chrissy Watkins. Mm -hmm. You have a shot of a woman in the ocean, treading water, and Spielberg chooses to shoot from below. And that is visual wit. Because what's that communicating? The point of view of the shark. Yeah. And the jaws is full of them. Um, my, my favorite one is uh, of an image communicating more than what's being visualized is, you know, after the second attack, when the mayors said, listen, you're going to have to keep the beaches open. They've got the extra shark spotters. Chief Brody sends his son to the pond. That's mm -hmm. where the old ladies go. Just do it for the old man. Yeah. Do it for the old man. Oh, great line. Uh, the shark attacks the, uh, the poor man in what appeared to be a bathtub. <laughs> Tin bath. Yeah. Last of the summer wine. But after that attack and Brody's son, um, miraculously is unharmed the shark swims past mm. he looks out to the ocean there is a slow pan that is communicating more than what is being visualized because we know as the audience and this is visual wit that brody is now going to pursue the shark and yeah. and put away all of his fears jaws is full of it and i mm -hmm. think that is why matt this is a filmmaker's film. That's a bit of a trope for Spielberg though, isn't it? That the frame within a frame, he becomes quite, mm. uh, iconic for Spielberg. That one of my favorite shots is when the three of them go off on the orca and we get the slow, um, track through the jaws and the window frame. Yeah. So we've got, amazing. We've got the teeth, the window frame, and we see them going off into the distance. Mm. And then we reverse that shot and I'm looking back at Quint's fishing shack and, I think that's a really, really Agreed. well composed. That, that might be my, um, one of my favorites, top two mm. favorite shots, but on, on things that are unseen, I love the, the barrels that you've mentioned. I also love the jetty when the guy, the holiday roast scene with Charlie and his mate <laughs> yeah. and it gets dragged out and then he uses the jetty as the floating oh, kind of device to, so to, good. to show. And I think he was supposed to lose a leg there, but they moved it over to the, to, to the, the hammy guy in the, in the pond. Who was like a stunty, I think. I think he was a stunty that, that filled in for that role. And, uh, just another thing on the shark. I know that the shark would be criticized now by contemporary audience, audiences, but I kind of go with it. There's, there's a, there's a part of my mind that knows it doesn't look amazing, but it's a suspension of disbelief because I want to believe the journey and I want to 
believe that it's real and I want to believe that it's scary. And you kind of go into a childlike mindset again. And uh, that's crucial in accepting it. I think the other, uh, the other aspect that, that keeps the shark believable, certainly for the longest part of the running time is the distortion of water. Mm. So for example, that attack on the guy in the bathtub. Yeah. Well, he's not in a bathtub, but okay, listen, you know what I'm on about? The, the, the crappy boat. In the pond. You see yeah. the shark, you see the shark under the water. That shot works. Amazing shot. The way when he bites his leg and drags him under. It's absolutely terrifying, that shot. No, there's only really one shot that kind of, and I'm so far, we, we've had this discussion before. I'm so far into the film. It doesn't bother me anymore. And when the shark leaps onto the back, yeah. that is, <laughs> yeah. that is like, you know, there's a, there's a gag on South Park where the shark jumps on shore and starts raping a man. And that is, that is, that shot, that shot's almost as cartoonish and as comical mm. as that. But yeah. you know what? Um, I'm so far in to how like bloodthirsty this animal is mm-hmm. and how like desperate it is for, for it. And this, this ship's sinking. I don't mind. And it's fine because to be honest, all the other shots, I, I really, I find them quite effective. And mm-hmm. the black eyes are, are, are you know, the, are the black, the doll's eyes. There's a debate raging in the Jaws community, the fanatics, uh, who, uh, which shot is when you see Jaws, uh, his name's Jaws. His name's Bruce uh, for the first time. Jaws, Jaws the Shark. Jaws the Shark. When do you feel like the, the, the shark is first revealed? Because there's the Alex Kintner bit, which is very abstract. You just sort of see it turn over. And then... I heard the, that was going to be more brutal as well, and more graphic. Uh, it was. They they cut it down. The, there's a couple I mean, of stills where you can see what it would have been. Uh, and yes, wow. we would tone that back. And then there's the bit in the pond, but he's under the water. But I love that shot where it drags him under by his by his foot. I, I and like then, the shot uh, the shot of the the younger kid who's with sandcastles and the sharks in the background just swimming. Just by. the fin it's when when the fins. Are, I mean yeah. that is. Like, and you see the scale because you see the dorsal fin and then the tail, yeah. so you know exactly how long it is. It's it's and again Spielberg scary. man, the misdirection. We've just had the kids with the the prank. Yeah. And then, it, oh, hold on, there is a shark. It, it's very well, but I don't know. Like, do I you think, think it's when it's it pops out when it's chumming. That? That's the other thing. I, I think some people say it's when it's chumming, when, when he's chummed some of this mm. shit and it pops out. That's the moment that's replicated at Universal Studios and uh, on the rides yeah. and all of that stuff. But I think we, that's when we get the first real look at it. But there are mm-hmm. glimpses before, like Gally said, it's through the gauze of the water and it's kind of still partially hidden or it's a fin. So it's just, it's like Predator again, isn't it? It's peeling the onion and just showing a, a bit at a time. Well, do you think he, Spielberg, would have learned something from, you know, that Hammer Horror and, and the creature features, uh, you know, from Universal? A creature from the Black Lagoon was an influence, he yeah. said. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like in not being able to show the shark and you having to go back to your education and your influences and to think like, well, how do I make this more effective? And it, it really, really works. Well, well, Matt, I will add to the, uh, fanatics. I, I know it's not visual, mm. but let's be honest. The first time the shark appears, it's at the blackout screen of the opening of the movie. It's John Williams's music. I mean, that right. is the, that is the shark. And that is, again, that is part and parcel of what Spielberg is achieving in in very, very little time that runs through the whole movie. So you have John Williams's music, 
the simple the simple three notes. Mm-hmm. That is the shark's perspective. Right before we then go to what I think looks like a lovely beach party, by the way. Yeah. Um, very seventies <laughs> though in its aesthetics. Reminded me of Karate Kid. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. Um, so that music comes like a signature, doesn't it? It's well, it, absolutely, and that motif is then played and played with us throughout the movie. I, the stuff, some of the stuff that I love with the music um, uh, near the end when they're on the orca is when it's really faint. So you could just about hear it mm-hmm. and you think the shots come in, but it's not. And, and Williams and Spielberg are playing with you at this point. Yeah. Uh, because we are, we are now, we know what that means. And every time you hear it or you think you hear it, or even when it's played in a different key, you know, it's about, you don't know where, but you know, it's somewhere. And it's that the psycho is, thing, isn't it? it? It's the shower yeah. scene. And another like, influence, I think they they said that they wanted this to be like, uh, you know, it was um, to make showers terrifying. This was going to make swimming in open water terrifying. So there's something else that popped up this week. Uh, I know there's a lot of trivia attached to to the score in particular, but there was one that popped up this week that I loved. Um, there was a a lady playing. Uh, I think it was a tuba to to john williams and she played uh beethoven's seventh symphony and she played it and there's a note for note steal of the do 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 exactly like that and he was fascinated because it's not a conscious steal i believe that he didn't steal it from from beethoven but he's clearly a fan and he was like wow that must have been the precursor wow. or something to to where i took it from and it was great to see him kind of realize maybe where he subconsciously took it from so that was kind of a fascinating video in australia they use the music to uh, actually warn people in the water if they see a shot well in in classrooms here teaching korean kids they know they know that it means something terrifying is happening or they know that it's somehow connected to a shark sometimes they do the fin and they haven't even seen the film it's just influenced pop Mm. culture in such a way that it's just generational and just trickles down Rewatching it this week, one of my kind of not favorite scenes, but just like watching it and going, well, yeah, if I had a big scene of exposition, I try and make it as visually interesting as possible. Mm-hmm. It's the bit where the mayor and the uh, newspaper journalist and mm-hmm. they, they, after, after he's got the, the signs that he's going to close down the beaches, they just go on that like uh, car ferry. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's an information dump. Yeah. But why not do that in the most visually interesting way mm-hmm. by having them move from one bit to the next bit? Because <laughs> right. ordinarily that would just be blocked. Yeah, but the camera doesn't move. The camera is static, but you it's constantly... Martin, you, you got to shut down the beaches on your own authority? Well, what other authority do I need? Now, technically, you need a civic ordinance or a resolution by a board of select. That's just going by the book. We're really a little anxious that you're, uh, you're rushing into something serious here. It's your first summer, you know. What does that mean? I'm only trying to say that Amity is a summer town. We need summer dollars. If people can't swim here, they'll be glad to swim at the beaches of Cape Cod, Hampton, Long Island. That doesn't mean we have to serve them up a smorgasbord. We never had that kind of trouble in these waters. Well, what else could have done that to that girl? Boat development? Well, I think uh, possibly, uh, yes, a boating That's not what you told me over the phone. I was wrong. We'll have to amend our reports. You'll stand by I'll that? stand by you. Uh, a summer girl goes swimming. 
swims out a little far. She tires. Fishing boat comes along. It's happened before. I don't think you appreciate the gut reaction people have to these things. Harry, I appreciate it. I'm just reacting to what I was told. Martin, it's all psychological. You yell Barracuda. Devices. Huh? What? You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Can I add to um, Patrick's favourite shot, which I agree with, through the, through the skeletal jaws of the from uh, what did you call it quince quince shack i was i was quince trying to find a word for fishing it fishing yeah. shack quince fishing shack amazing and then but when you when you said spielberg and framing galley my um favorite shot comes to mind and it's it's not the contra zoom the you know the the dolly in the, the famous jaws shot that they call it but it is in that sequence uh and there's a, there's this bit i still can't quite tell if it's intentional but i really want it to be where alex kintner is talking to his mum and she says alex kintner uh, they're starting to prune, as in you've been in the water for t- for too long. You should come out. And I, I love the way that she actually says the name aloud there, because that kind of we remember that later when it happens too. That that's just a, a lovely little detail. But there's a bit where the camera comes, the camera kind of tracks back, and it tracks right with Alex Kintner as he's walking towards the chief, who's just looking out onto the water. And from the way it's framed, it looks like the Kintner boy climbs into the chief's head it looks like he's climbing into his mind it's really hard to describe but the next time you watch it just watch that tracking shot and as the chief is looking out it looks like he's he's in there and then the next the next scene he's dead and he's you know literally in in the chief's brain the entire time you know it's the trigger that that causes that's cool causes it so i don't know if it's intentional but i i kind of think it is because of the way the camera moves there's a lot of that though, I think. There's a lot of suggestive framing in this, Matt. And, mm. and, and we, you know, we've talked about and explored motivation of camera uh, and uh, the movement. And we, we talked about Friday Night Lights, like whip pans that lead from one shot into the next shot in, in the same uh, edit. And in here, there was, there was some really nice ones on the Orca mm. where we'd be up deck and the, uh, uh, whoever's driving the boat and their reaction, we pan down and we get Hooper's reaction all in the same, same edit. And there's quite a few of those pans and tracks in here that, um, there's some split diopters as well that, that adds to your theory there on, on Brody, Brody's, um, state of mind where someone's talking to him, but his eyes on the sea, he can't keep off it. And it's all telling us where his mind's at and where his thoughts are, because I think he feels, well, there's, there's thematically, we've not really talked about his motives or anything, but there's, you know, there's guilt and there's, um, his, I don't know, honor that he, you know, he's got a duty here and he's not been able to fulfill it. It's absolutely his duty, isn't it? And, um, that sequence again, everything's being visually told, you know, you don't need uh, the old trick of just turn, turn the movie on mute and watch it. Well, Jaws, you could just watch it and you'll get, you'll get all of it. I don't, you know, the, the dialogue will just maybe add to some of the humor, some of the great lines, but you could watch this film visually and you'll get everything. You could, but just a word on the sound design in that sequence and in the town when he's wanting to close at the beach, all what I really like um, about this, and I think that was kind of 
the movement at the time, the seventies is all these sounds, all these natural sounds and natural environment. There's all these noises going on and conversations, the Alex Kintner, the pruning yeah. stuff. There's all the people screaming and laughing and all these other, you know, like real environment. You know, the exorcist on. has a kind of a documentary feel, mm. but it's interspersed with really thoughtfully composed, deliberate things, but it's also as if he's just capturing things that are happening yeah. at the same time. And the, yeah. the mixture of that stuff in, especially at this time in the seventies is my favorite era. It's, it's pre CG and all that, which, which really helps me, but it's, yeah, you, it, you it watch has, the Safety brothers stuff nowadays, like uncut gems and they really tap into just this massive sound and yeah. all conversations going on at the same time. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting because you try, you're trying to latch onto what's the most important thing that you should be listening to. And for rewatches, it's very layered as well. That helps all the, on the rewatches because you hear new things and new details. Hey, Mike. I know you got a lot of problems downtown, but I've got a couple of problems with the house I wish you could take care of. One, I've got some cats parking in front of the house. I can't get down to the office, and that garbage truck next to the office has got to be moved. So what I need is a red zone. It's a simple thing you Honey. can take care of. You've Honey, got would you come here a minute, okay? please? Yeah, fine, fine. Yeah. Listen, if the kids go to the water, it's ruining you. No. And they can, they can play out here on the beach. All right, let them go. It's cold. <laughs> we know all about you, Chief. You don't go in the water at all, do you? It's some bad hat, Harry. Did you run into this idea of the, of the production design, uh, this idea that yellow is for danger? Spielberg wanted to, to strip out the color red because the, the only red he wanted in the movie was the blood. Again, that, that's like a nice little detail where you go, right, so there's a, there's a thinker behind everything here. Exactly. But then how do you, how do you articulate other things? So he introduced this idea of yellow being for danger and it's more in the 4th of July sequence. The more yellow oh, wow. you see. Wow. I'm, I'm already picking it up. This is good. The yellow that you see within the frame. It's like, a, you know, a painter's palette. You don't really register it, but it's, it's there. Like the, the, the number of swimsuits that are yellow in the 4th of July sequence is, is greater than before. You've got the bit where Hooper dives down to the hull of the, the boat with Ben Gardner's head. And he's, he's got a ring of yellow. The, the light under Ho- Hooper's boat is yellow. And Gardner's face is yellow. Gardner's <laughs> face is yellow, yeah. Um, you've got, um, obviously the yellow barrels. You've got, um, um, the, uh, uh, Kintner's mum. Well, She's Kintner's wearing... floating thing, is that not his yellow? Li- his lilo is yellow. Um, oh, yeah, there's all kinds of, uh, it, it works really well on a rewatch. You can, you can pick out all these little, kind of little, sem- soon as you said it, I just went straight to the barrels and the lilo. Yeah. And I can see it all now. And I, it's funny that maybe subconscious thing. Yeah. And that's, that's a very, like we, I mentioned the subtleties earlier. I do think this film is full of these little subtleties. And the, the one I, that really stuck with me this morning is, um, the, uh, uh, Brody's, I must say it's Brody. I keep doing this. It's Brody. I keep yeah, doubting Brody. myself. It's Brody. Right. But Brody's fear of the water. It's quite a subtle, like underplayed thing. Yeah. And later on when they're comparing the scars, 
Hooper and Quint compare the scars quite openly, quite proudly until we get quite personal. Mm-hmm. Whereas Brody's in the background and he looks at his stomach, doesn't he? And he's got yeah. something and he doesn't want to talk about I it. I guess it's and an appendix scar. I always thought it was an appendix scar. Well, is that why he's fearful of the water? I wonder. That's amazing. I've never even considered it. But he doesn't bring until, it up. Until this morning, I was like, is that That's why amazing. he's scared of water? Something may have happened there. Something bit him. And it's, I love <laughs> that it's not, ex- maybe, but I'm, I, I like that it's not explained and it, it's real layer to Brody's character. Cause I went straight to medical procedure. He doesn't feel like a, a real man. He doesn't feel like he can be part of that conversation. He's embarrassed that the only scar he has is a clean medical procedure so he doesn't even bring it up but you could be right you never know there's lots to read about that and i really yeah. like the layer of that because brody yeah it's 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 weird the he's uh, and i love the sentiment that it's, it's only an island if you look at it from the water yeah he's well, can, really thought about it can we talk about brody a bit because he is my my favorite character of of the three um and i, th- I think it's because cool. he kind of goes against the the bravado of of Quint. Um, when we get to Critics Corner, um, uh, Pauline Kale puts the boot in on, uh, on toxic masculinity, like years before it's time. But, um, so, uh, it's all about, you know, I'll do that in Critics Corner, but the, the chief is kind of the other side of that. And I, I, I always liked Hooper, but I feel like, you know, Hooper is the rich kid and, uh, um, Quint is the, the working class hero. Yeah. He's, he's the Spielberg avatar. And uh, I always lean towards uh, the the chief more. It's he's not really courageous. Um, like today's heroes would be more caricatures. Um, he's like uh, you know, we talked about John McClane, who was scared of flying. Well, the chief is an mm-hmm. aquaphobe, and he's got these weaknesses, but he has to overcome them. It's just more interesting than than your average. But isn't it interesting, Matt? That um, you know, out of the three, Roy Scheider's got on the page. It's a less flashy role. There's yeah. less, less, less lines, um, or certainly less kind of memorable lines. Obviously he gets one of the, one of the key signifying lines from the movie, but people remember Robert Shaw and, and Richard Dreyfus and, and they're, they're battling, but actually as a stoic, quiet, believable character, he is, he is the one. And I think he's got, he's probably got the hardest job out of the three because he hasn't got necessarily that flash and bravado because by the end he is the least equipped to deal with the shark mm-hmm. but he is the one that we is who is gonna end I, I i can picture quint killing it I, I can picture hooper doing something with his strict strict nine devices but i if it comes down to to the shark versus brody i don't know how he's gonna do it and and he pulls it out of the bag at the end it's a wonderful full circle moment as well because he was being chastised not 20 minutes before for, for pulling the wrong rope. Yeah. And, and, you know, Hooper says you mess around with these things and they're, they're going to blow up. There's your foreshadowing set up and pay off, Gally. Oh, we love a set up and pay off. And it just, but that stuff is just grand to me. And, and even Quint says, I don't know what Shark's going to do it. Probably eat it. Yeah. Team one eat a rocking chair. And there's another one when, um, the chief's looking in the book, um, when Michael's oh. uh, on the boat and he's flicking through the book and there's one frame of the shark with a, an oxygen tank in its mouth. Yeah. And it just creates a little subliminal. Is that, that, that's one of my favorite little lighting setups in there because the reflection in the glasses of him looking through yeah. how the lighting changes and reflect. It's, 
I've tried to rip that off in three films so far, and I can't do oh, it. Oh, man, it's a really <laughs> delightful um, shot, actually, uh, mm. of him. And again, like, Scheider, I think he has a lot of stillness in him in this film that really works. He's very stoic and interesting, and his face does a lot of work um, for you to read upon. You mentioned Charlton Heston, um, who was going to be up for Brody, and they thought he was too big a star. And there was a quote that said, Charlton Heston would be 12 cylinders, but Brody only needs eight. <laughs> so it's like you said there, Gally, that Quint needs to be bigger and, and the chief needs to sit in, in between, but it, do, it doesn't work if that role's not perfectly cast. The, the dynamic's nice between the three of them though, isn't it? Exactly. It, it, yeah. Well, it, you know, you said that Pauline Kale was describing toxic masculinity before that became popular. The the movie itself is an exploration in three different types of masculinity, isn't it? You've got mm. the stoic, quiet, working class, salt of the earth cop who's just trying to do his duty. You've got the ex-military madman who is larger than life. Post-traumatic. But what I do like is I do like the mix of Hooper, who is the rich kid, but he's he's not like either of them. It's a modern man. Well, he, everyone refers to him as a kid, even though he looks, you know, he's older than me. Um, and, but, it, but he's small. They underestimate him, but he's got gadgets. He's got smarts. As you say, he would be well equipped to tackle the shark. He's, he's Batman? What? Well, possibly. <laughs> he's possibly. kind of representative of science as well, in a way. Um, yeah, yeah. That kind of view of things. And, 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 and the, the animosity between Quint and Hooper. It's the old versus the new, I read. I like to think this is unscripted. Tell me if I'm right. And just the visuals and everything you need to know between Quint and Hooper is the drink off. Yes. Quint crushing, crushing the can of beer and him having a glass of water and crushing the cup. Yeah. Looking at each other. It's great. I know that Dreyfus was looking to do the movie because he was unhappy with his performance in a recently released film and he just mm -hmm. said he needed to do some work. According to Spielberg, the cup crush was something that Dreyfus wanted to bring so he could add a bit more to his character. There's all the humanity that Spielberg brings to his films and I think that's why actors really took to him in the 70s and on because moments like that, I think for an actor's medium maybe films are deemed more serious in the performance there, but him allowing these moments of humanity and humor and, and like personality to come through the characters. Mm. Like even, I mean, it's, it's a more serious moment, but the, there's a lovely bit with um Brody and his son, his son's imitating him at the, at the dinner table. Well, that, that was actually what, what you said, Gally, there is the, with the crushing of the cup, um, the chief, um, uh, Roy Scheider and the kid were rehearsing like while they were setting up the lights and he just started mimicking, mimicking him. And he said to Spielberg, come and get this. And it was a, it was a weird little improv between him and the kid. And it's just magic. And the thing that but underscores it, also adds it to the film, it's so like the character, but it's, it's John Williams there as well. That's one of my favorite little John Williams cues. I think it's called father and son. And it's just a beautiful oh. moment. Well, the line that gets me is, uh, give me a kiss. Because I need it. Can we go back to uh, Dreyfus and is it Dreyfus or Dreyfus and Robert Shaw? Uh, there was a bit of trivia there where they did not get on. Uh, Dreyfus said that Shaw was uh, possessed by an evil troll. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was as if he was, and he targeted him all the time. He said, "You couldn't do ten push-ups," and uh, he's actually British, so he probably wouldn't be saying it in that in that voice. But um, you couldn't dive off the top of the orca. He said to him, "You're challenging him to do like weird stuff." Again, this masculinity 
thing is spilling over into into real life. He tried to make him take loads of shots of, of bourbon. And then when they were doing the bit where they're trying to tie on the stern cleats and all the water is flowing over, Robert Shaw got hold of the um, uh, the fire hose that was firing the, the water into the shot and he was getting Dreyfus right in the face with it. And that really pissed him off. Um, so the, the idea of one crushing the beer and one crushing the styrofoam cup, that sort of became the perfect visual for their real relationship. They're always kind of at at each other. And it, I wonder and it, if he was well, doing it to better the film, or was he just method? Yeah, the, you yeah. know, one of those Oliver yeah. Reed drunk. No, no, types well, he, no, he and... is Robert Robert Shaw again. It's the old old versus the new. I think. Yeah. I think um, yeah, yeah. Robert Shaw is at this point a classically trained British actor of a certain era who loves a pint on set. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. um, but does not does not in any way affect the performance as in if anything for Quinn absolutely is appropriate we talked about we talked about introductions to characters jaws is full of them there's lots of great every single character's got a great introduction that i can i can visualize in my head and they're all appropriate to the character you know chief brodie's is understated he's being literally woken from a slumber and he doesn't quite fit in. There's some stuff there about the the light didn't used to shine in here. And then they talk about how long they've been there. I think there's one line. And then they say in Amity, they say Yad. In the Yad, not too far from the car and all that. And I'm still not quite sure where we are. It's filmed in Martha's Vineyard, but it's clearly a Boston kind of... New England. New England thing. But it, in one line of dialogue, you you know that, you know, about their family... You get everything. He's not used to the phones, like which phones ring. Yeah, There's yeah. Little bits that are good. Well, he's he's like a fish out of water in his own town, which again works, pun intended. In, in a way, it's 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 again it's testament to Scheider that he's almost a bit of a goof for the majority <laughs> of the movie. <laughs> yeah. That's a good description. Yeah. He's dropping paintbrushes. Yeah, he's running yeah. around like he's completely out of his depth. I don't believe he's out of his depth. I, I believe he's just out, out of his comfort zone. I know what you mean. It's like it's mounting against him and he, we don't know if he can deal with this. We don't, we're not like, he's not like John, Mc, even like John McClane. We think, we know I he never can felt he deal with it. Deal with it. I just feel like he's not very clearly not supported by the mayor, you know, like, and so that makes him second guess himself. But I also think because he doesn't know, you know, like these are your people, talk to them. Mm. Like yeah. he, you're the chief of police. So he's all, he's constantly never yeah. really comfortable in his own skin, even. On his island. But he knows what to do. He knows, like, I've got to close the beaches, but they're against him. Isn't the key when he gets slapped? That's when we know that he's tried to do the right thing and we really feel for him. We don't, he's Mm. not vilified there. We feel for the chief when she, when she says that to him in front of everybody. And that's what drives him thereafter, right? It's like a, I've got to atone for what's happening. Yeah. And then the final straw before Gally's favorite, like little zoom out to see there is that when it's his family, that's almost directly influenced, like, cause Michael's in the pond. So, uh, that's the, the last straw. And we, we know that something needs to be done. Chief Brody. Yes. <laughs> I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. <laughs> you knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. 
You knew all those things. But still, my boy is dead now. There's nothing you can do about it. My boy is dead. I wanted you to know that. I'd forgotten in a way as well. I don't know if you had. Because the way that Spielberg shoots Amity is so bloody strong, you know, the old, the location is a character in itself. I'd forgotten that that we leave Amity after an hour and we're on the Orca for an hour. It's split in two, isn't it? The film's pretty much down the middle. Wait, is it an hour? We're, we're yeah, I thought mm. it was a 70-30, but it's 50-50. Mm. So again, just the strength of like the opening hour and then the second hour, the sea adventure that then turns into we're in, you know, these these guys are well out of their depth. They're, they're on the, the drinking scene, uh, just again, I... I really like the blocking, like the direction of that scene because it's the two of them sat together and Brody's still the outsider in that mm-hmm. scene. He's off camera and it could have been a three shot them all together. They've got it, their legs over each other's not. legs and the chief is yeah. over in the other part. Yeah. It's and it's good. the, and, and it's the other part of advancing and forward in the genre is that in a creature feature, very rarely are you going to get that quiet moment. And, mm. and again, Spielberg, the script, you know, or knowing now that they'd never had a locked script, uh, before they started. So I know that the, the stories about, um, Robert Shaw coming up with a version, Peter Bensley had a longer monologue, etc. but just mm-hmm. the idea that you would even allow that kind of space in a movie that's about a killer shark for, for a character who's been played as an antagonist to then suddenly the layers, you know, I love the fact that he grabs Hooper when he's like, let me guess, mother. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, we're not going to joke about this. And also it, it's revealed that he's not just a madman. He's this way for a very specific reason. And his hatred mm-hmm. of sharks and his the thing that drives him is all because of that, uh, the, the Indianapolis incident, which and- was going to be the original Jaws 2, I heard. Uh, there was going to be a prequel and Spielberg was going to, wow. to, to do the story of the Indianapolis as, as kind of a Jaws 2 and there'd be loads Whoa. of diff- different sharks. And if that was made in the eighties by Spielberg, I'd be behind it with someone else playing a young Quint, you know, yeah. but, um, but I'd rather he make that than 1941. Let's yeah. Say. He should have gone there. Yeah. Hmm. But with the, with the Indianapolis story, is that. It's also great because it kind of foretells what's about to happen as well. You know, with Quint cutting off the radio system, which is, you said on the Indianapolis, there was no distress signal. We turned it off. It was. He's reliving his trauma and he knows where it's coming from. You know, there's a bit where, um, Hooper is on, Hooper's under in the cage and the rigging that they've, that they've built to try and pull the cage out, uh, collapses. And it's just before Patrick's favorite shot where the shark jumps onto the, boat um and quint is aware of that there's something about to happen it's almost as if this thing's chasing him and it's his fate it didn't get it didn't get him that night when he was on on the indianapolis but it's it's still coming for him and there's all the stuff about the life jacket i'll never put on a life jacket again he hands one to the chief but he doesn't put one on he said he'll he'll never do that again on thursday morning chief i bumped into a friend of mine herbie robinson from cleveland 
baseball player, Bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water, stuck a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura, so she swung in low and he saw us to the young part of lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway, he saw us and he come in low and three hours later a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So eleven hundred men went in the war. 316 men come out. The sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. And I think it, I think that portrays the kind of the the pace of the film. The editing of the film is really quite tight and succinct storytelling because we slow down. We have this really human moment with the storytelling, and then bang. The next thing we know, the, the shark is back and ramming the boat in danger again. Love Quint's reaction. Start the engine. <laughs> Start the engine. <laughs> <laughs> He's completely plastered at that point. It's the same line reading as, uh, put out the fire, chief. <laughs> <laughs> I quote when I'm drunk, I quote yours and I quote <laughs> Robert Shaw because he oh. is the biggest, he is the biggest. Yeah. Like character on the screen. I can't tell the listeners how many times you've sang Spanish ladies to me on the night out, <laughs> And I, I constantly always say, ah, the Mrs. Chief. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot talk about characters without talking about, um, the fourth MVP, Maury Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Because Jaws isn't Jaws without one of my favorite central <laughs> themes that runs through it, which is capitalism over personal welfare and safety of others basically over every, anything else mm. represented beautifully by the mayor Harry, we have to close the beaches Brody. sick vandalism that is a deliberate mutilation of a public service message now i want those little paint happy bastards caught and hung up by their buster browns that's it goodbye i'm not gonna waste my time arguing with a man who's lining up to be a hot lunch i'm gonna see you later oh, no, please don't do this Mr. Vaughn, what we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks. And that's all. Now, why don't you take a long, close look at this sign? Those proportions are correct. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. I like the bit where he says, oh, you don't, you don't have the tooth. The tooth wouldn't matter, would it? If, even if he handed him a tooth. But there's also a thing in the book where the, the, in the book, the mob is forcing him to, you know, keep the beaches open and to make, ensure all the money keeps coming in. And I'm, and it's better without it because he's just a greedy politician and he's out to serve himself under the guise of, I did what was best for the, 
I was acting in the town's best interests, I think he says uh, at one point. He knows if he shuts the beaches, he is not going to get reelected. It is very simple. But I also love the way that Spielberg sprinkles um, that kind of capitalism over everything throughout the movie. So in my mind, I know it's not explicit, but we have a shark attack at the beginning. Mm. I think the Kintner boy gets killed. Then it's the beaches will be open on the 4th of July just make it happen. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there's a shark arcade and there's someone right outside the ferry <laughs> selling shark souvenirs. Yeah. And now that is just genius. Cap- that is someone looking at opportunity and going, have we got that mm. shark? Coke? Get it on the <laughs> fucking pier. <laughs> yeah. I, I see Vaughn is America and there's, cause it's 4th of July. It's like a, there's a threat on the independence of amateur America yeah. and, and you know, yeah, yeah. he'd do anything in his power. In Quint's introduction, though, they're all very selfish. They're all like that her bed and breakfast has to close. You know, yeah. she's like she's not thinking about some poor kid that that died or someone else might get eaten. They're all just self-centered. Favorite ADR line: "24 hours is like a week." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gotcha every single time. It's like way in the background. It's someone, <laughs> someone in the bleachers yeah. shouting that. At it's true. Obviously, we've been kind of not sycophanting, but we're we're talking very, very positively about the movie. William Goldman, Oscar-winning screenwriter of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, had a pop at Spielberg, and I just wanted to know what your thoughts were. Mm. So when Jaws came out and then Indiana Jones and um, Spielberg were starting to helm some of these, or, or at least start these franchises, um, he said that Spielberg was the death of cinema. Uh, you know, that old, that old line that gets uh, thrown out every decade. Thoughts on this one? You know, just as a populist filmmaker that he could never be a true artist because uh, he makes popular cinema and not, you know, stuff that no one sees, but everyone lords. Uh, any thoughts on that? Wait, 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 sorry. I don't really understand his criticism. Like, what's his founding of the death? So, you know, the, the idea that, you know, I mentioned it in my opening, uh, my opening monologue about, um, that, summer blockbuster the the start of the summer blockbuster the way that movies started to become distributed you know the, the opening weekend being the idea he created a monster here with this one it kind of created yeah this this completely transformative uh change in the in the hollywood system also as those 70s films were really brilliant as well at, at the time and, and this kind of birthed star wars too star wars was really the one for me that sort of killed it i mean there's a lot of merchandise attacks to to jaws but i think george lucas took it sort of stratospheric with with the, the star There's wars a sentiment that i really like is um uh universal ran an egg smugly announcing it's a movie too thus celebrating the phenomenon and putting pay to the room that george lucas invented film merchandise merchandising lucas just invented keeping the money which uh, i thought was a really interesting take on on yeah. jaws at the time See, for, for me, this is where it sort of corresponds. It's like art and commerce sort of colliding. And this is the peak for me. There's been, you know, I've got some more in my conclusion, but sometimes the best band is the most successful band. And sometimes the best film is the most successful film. Sometimes those two things kind of align. And I love the Beatles and I love Jaws. And that's just kind of where I am. With, with that thing. I, I love it that the best thing is also the most popular thing. And everyone is kind of united behind this singular thing. Cause we don't agree on everything. And, but I think most people can agree that this is a, an extremely, you know, wonderful film. So answer your question, Gally, oh, obviously disagree that the things that 
opened up after Jaws. It's, uh, I don't know, is that sentiment of someone who just believes in purest cinema? And... I feel like it, they think it derailed a movement, like the way the movies in the 70s were going. That you, and, and, it would, and without Jaws, maybe we'd have a very different, you know, beginning to the 80s. But, but was Jaws, you know, so here's the question, like, was, was this expected to be such a big blockbuster hit and make all this money and is that why it was released over x amount of theaters they had a lot of faith because of the book i think and and there's a lot of word of mouth um but i don't know if you can ever really predict it but they had very high hopes that's why they kept piling more money onto it and letting the schedule go and not firing spielberg and matt's right they knew that they had a winner he had a dry run with jewel you know, it's, it's not just the fact that, you know, substitute a, a truck for a shark. Mm. It's the way, it's the way that he ratchets the tension up. You know, we, those little moments, Quince fishing a line, ticking away mm. silently, you know, quietly. He's yeah. the only one who recognizes it. We recognize it. The other characters are oblivious. He's slowly putting on the chief is tying his little brown eel. Visual not... storytelling. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's just, it's just that stuff. We re- we respond to it because I don't know anyone who doesn't. You know, Danielle. Yeah, what was her verdict? Uh, she loved it. She thought it was great. And I knew the movie had her when Ben Garner's head comes out because she jumped and grabbed my arm. Yeah. And she's seen the film loads of times. It's the timing of that and the sting in the music too. It's the timing. It's the sting. You know, we would call that a jump scare, but it's mm. earned because it's been set up. Jaws taught me how to watch movies. You know, I now know when I'm watching a movie – if a director leaves a space with nothing, <laughs> yeah. it will be filled in by something. With an eyeless and, head. And that is, it's mm. just, yeah, but, but I know it's coming and I always kind of have a little jolt at it. It's the same with the, you know, come down here and chum some of this shit. Well, there's an interesting yeah, thing there. It's more an unexpected one for me. Well, he, Spielberg's talked about that. He said that he got greedy and the second one with, with the shark popping out, the chum some of this shit bit was supposed to be the big jump scare, but he got greedy. And then in Werner Field's pool, they poured some milk into her swimming pool and they reshot, they, they shot the insert of uh, Hooper and Ben Gardner's head. And because he did that earlier in the film, the audience was on guard for the second bit where the shark pops out. But it's, I don't consider the chum bit a jump scare as much as the Ben Gardner head, because we are protecting ourselves at that point we know that he will pull out these little tricks and he said he learned he learned then that you only get one jump scare in a movie you can only really get them once and then they don't trust you after that this is this also like giving birth to something like james cameron and terminator this relentless killing machine just stop it in the jump scares aside the scary thing is just the relentlessness when yeah. it comes to the, the window mike myers in, in halloween same mind, you know yeah. i saw a lot i saw a lot of halloween in Jaws, and watching, rewatching yeah. Jaws, like the way the musical motifs work, that, re- that relentlessness that you're talking mm-hmm. about, that ratcheting of tension, you know, so you can see the influence. We haven't actually said the word horror yet, have we? Like, well, maybe classic creature feature, universal. It's in a little, um, subgenre of films that were like horrors that were nominated for Oscars. I don't know if I can remember them all, but it's The Exorcist and Jaws, Get Out, Silence of the Lambs. And I think there's another one in there somewhere, but I, I love that little subgenre. Of, Cape Fear? Uh, no, not Cape Fear. Um, I forget the other one. I think there's maybe five, but I, I love that it fits into that little zone of, is it horror? Is it not horror? Um, 
it, it, it plays as a drama. It's got comedic elements. It's got a, a bit of everything. But I, I do see it as a horror film. There's enough scenes in there to make it a horror. For me, it's an absolute, it's a horror film. Some of the things that it, it's now taught me, and you know, you're saying that Spielberg got greedy is the, you've got to, you've got to kind of get a scare in every 15 minutes otherwise. And that, that actually plays in Jaws. Cause, cause like, it's not a jump scare, but when that shark takes that stuntman's leg in the mm. pool, yeah. And when it when it drags him under, uh, uh, that's possibly the most chilling shot for me. That and Kintner being dragged up in the air in a pool of red, like yeah. they send shivers down me, and they're really, really effective. It, isn't it great that it's a creature feature? But usually, when you see the creature, uh, you don't you don't really look forward to seeing the creature. But in Jaws, every time you see the shark, it's great. You you enjoy oh. seeing it. It's you don't feel like you see it too much. Uh, and like, I'm thinking mm. of the bit where he said he's, he's going to chew his way right up to us. He's, he's biting right through that line. You know, I think they've put a few barrels mm. in him and he's, and then the shark is out of the water and Quint fires another harpoon into him. And it, every time you see the shark, it's welcome as opposed to nowadays where yeah, I'm yeah. thinking of a Jurassic world or something where you just see everything too much and it's not special. Uh, it, it's, it's great to see the shark. They're like little cameos. I think, uh, I think it's A.O. Scott, um, at the New York Times in, in Critics Corner. He's, he talked about whenever, every time you see the shark, it feels like a cameo, like a welcome cameo. There's a shot on the boat towards the end. We're getting right towards the end when the shark's in the distance and it rags out the sea and it opens mm. its, its massive jaws, jaws the shark. <laughs> and I think, um, I think Brody's in the foreground and it's over shoulder, like perspective. Yeah. And it's just like, whoa, fucking out this scale and, mm-hmm. and, and then the, the, there's some really good shots <clears throat> and I think they were a really good addition because they were shot after in the Universal Studios with the cage yeah. and the rage shark just getting mad and ragging it about. Yeah. That's really well done because that's really playing on a human fear. You think you're in a safe zone in the cage and that's telling you. The, the Ron and Valerie Taylor stuff with the real sharks, uh, like where it gets caught in the cage and it's flapping around. We understand that that's not the mechanical shark on some level. We know that that whatever that great white turd that jumps onto the boat, it's not capable of flapping around like that, but we suspend our disbelief because we want that. Ebert said that it was seamless. It's not seamless, but it feels that way in, in your mind. It's a really well-earned character, like a proper character. You said fourth character, the mayor. We haven't spoken about Ellen yet. And then the, this character, Jaws, Jaws the shark or Bruce, <laughs> aka <better>. Bruce. <laughs> I prefer Jaws the shark. <laughs> yeah. Um, is a total character it's the antagonist it's the terminator matt i'm just going to go back to one thing you said about um jump scares danielle jumped and scared when uh when bruce pops through the window that's the best piece of sound design every time i watch it i notice the the really crisp sound of it coming through that that window i don't know how they did it it's when when i used to watch it on uh on dvd uh i hooked it up to one of those old midi systems of like cassette radio cd and I'd hooked it up to that. So it had like really loud speakers on. It was always that moment that was so crisp. And I know what you, exactly what you mean. It, it makes me jump every time. I think, uh, if everyone's happy, we should, our fingers are starting to prune, gents. <laughs> so, um, should we stop off at pier number 43, <laughs> critics corner? Matt, what have you got for us? We can start with a real critic this week. Uh, Pauline Kale in her absolutely pin sharp review in her piece, uh, notes on evolving heroes, morals, audiences from her book, When the Lights Go Down, which is my favorite 
compendium of hers, Essential Reading, uh, if you haven't got into Pauline Kael yet. Uh, that's the one with Taxi Driver, Close Encounters, Carrie, Cuckoo's Nest, Marathon Man, all, all the 70s stuff. Uh, she describes sitting down with an older Hollywood film director, and we seem to have cracked the case on that one, uh, Gally. Uh, we think it's Hitchcock. Uh, she's cryptic in the review, but we, we've deciphered it because he tends to overuse the term proscenium arch, which we yes. <laughs> had to Google. There's only, there's only a few people <laughs> on the planet yeah. that use that term yeah. as common language. Hello. Yeah. yeah so uh, she talks about, about that. And he said, uh, I think it's the same quote, Gally, about, um, uh, for Spielberg, there's nothing but the camera lens. Nothing else exists. And, uh, I mentioned the Woody Allen stuff. Um, she equated some of the humor to that. Um, even Roger Ebert loved this one. Um, uh, so I'm thrilled to not have to attack him or his weight this week. Um, he gave it four stars. Uh, he commented on the levels of meaning, uh, not being underlined by Spielberg. The, the levels are there, but they're very covert. He liked that. Right. Okay. So, so oh, he liked it. Okay. Oh, no, he liked that the levels of meaning were there, but. He, Spielberg didn't over-egg it. Um, okay, I thought he, maybe he was saying there weren't any levels of meaning. But no, no, no. Would like- no, no, I think I think he he recognises it. It's a four-star review, that which is odd. Just four's his maximum. I don't know why he does it out of four. Uh, he said that the necessary blood and it was necessary blood and guts, but nothing more. He found the shark seamless, which I disagree with, but it. He's right. In 1975, way. though, Matt. Night. You've got to remember. Yeah. For 75, I think it. I think it would have been like it would have wow. impressed people more than than contemporary audiences. Um, uh, A.O. Scott at the New York Times talked about how little Jaws actually had in common with the contemporary summer blockbusters because he felt Jaws was slow paced and character driven and had a real sense of place. And in spite of the shark, there was no real big special effects. Um, but I, you know, apart from a shark's head getting blown <laughs> off. <I mean. laughs> yeah. But I, I kind of know what he means in terms of, of Marvel, etc. Um, I, I do feel like a lot of subsequent films focused on the superficial elements of Jaws and they haven't really attempted to mimic the depth of the character and, and the meaningful layers. And, and the thoughtful nature of the story and the way it unfolds. That's just my, my take on that. But yeah, b- big, uh, big film, uh, with the critics too. I've got a really good, um, good, uh, critics corner here. <laughs> um, the, it was one of the better films I have ever seen, said Fidel Castro. Hello. <laughs> and uh, just on critics corner as well, Matt, there was, I, I all whenever I think of Jaws and criticism, I always think of Kermo harping on about the films about infidelity, or Jaws is about infidelity. It's not about shark, but uh-huh. that's about the book, right? Yeah, um, Ellen is dissatisfied with with the relationship, but every, it's weird. Like every summer comes around, she gets this desire to be unfaithful, and she sees like this idea of the tanned men in 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 Amity, and is kind of tempted. And the, the chief is too, but uh, I, I don't really like the chief in the book. But, um, he's older and, uh, you know, more disillusioned, but Ellen ends up cheating on the chief with Hooper in the book. There's an oh, affair shit. that happens there. Uh, and that's why up. Hooper dies because it's, his comeuppance. Uh, yeah, you could read it that way. You, you could probably, but Spielberg been... was right to remove that melodramatic yeah. subplot because it yeah. wouldn't have added anything to his version of this story. And, and actually, to be fair, Spielberg was right to just say, listen, Peter, thanks for the framework. I've got it 
you know, you can leave now. Someone on YouTube described that the book is like the tree trunk and the film is like a carved piece of art from that, from that tree. Mm. So it's like, it, it's not really a particularly good out. book, Patrick. No, no, it's that's not. the thing. It's not, it's not a particularly well written book. It's, it's, it's a, it's a pulp novel. It's something you buy in an airport. It's, a puff it's piece. not. It's a puff piece. <laughs> a puff piece. I'd have called it, here comes Jaws, Jaws the shark. Mind you don't get, <laughs> mind he doesn't get you with his massive jaws. <laughs> <laughs> colin, colin. I, I read a lot of Craig's things for this week, Matt. I thought I'd, I'd chip in because I liked reading about like a post-Watergate critic of capitalist society and mm-hmm. demolition of movie machismo with Quint and... But for most audiences, Jaws was just one hell of a ride. One critic put it, I wasn't scared and neither was the man under my seat. <laughs> and just to finish off with Pauline Kale, it was one of the most cheerfully perverse films ever made. Yeah, great quote. Yeah, I do remember her saying, Matt, that she felt like that Spielberg was a great technician. But yeah. There wasn't enough substance yet in his work. And because he quotes that in the HBO documentary and he says, she was right. I wasn't at that age. Um Mm. And he said, you know, that took, that took me to get life experience to develop real substance in, in my work and it reflect back. So again, I think it's yeah. testament to him to recognize that, you know, we see that he knows what he's doing with Jaws and, but there's only so far you can go with the character stuff. It, it, it all is there to support how we feel and keep us on the ride. But I think Patrick, you're absolutely nailed it. Like it is a, it is a roller coaster ride of a movie. Mm. You know, give you scares, give you cheers, give you all the things that you want, but you're not going to walk away from it and go, that yeah. might have fundamentally changed my outlook on life, apart <laughs> from maybe going on out, out onto open water. I, I missed this bit on Kale. She proposed that Spielberg made Hooper his avatar and the way Hooper deals with macho men, like blokey blokes, is to use humor to outsmart them and to be snarky. And she found that the humor... A lot of humor came from the, the death of Quint and she, she beautifully put it harrowingly funny, um, which, which kind of, kind of works for me. Quint is the guy who has to take on everything physically. He has to do it alone. He has to prove his worth and his might with his physical force and mm-hmm. violence. And this shark, this enemy just rips him to pieces. And she called the Quint character a satire of movie heroism. And you can see it in the moments like the crushing of the cup and the Mary Ellen Moffat, she broke my heart bit. He, he undercuts yeah. Quint in that, in that moment and he uses intelligence and sarcasm. And you feel like Spielberg's been bullied. You know, I'm going to take a, a wild guess here. He didn't have a great time at school, but, um, you know, defeating the bully, the macho guy with sarcasm and, and intelligence yeah. is probably where he's going. Matt, final thoughts on Jaws. And would you recommend it? To our listeners, this isn't a film that I ever considered to be a movie. It was real to me. I was young enough to watch and believe every single frame of it. I didn't know anything about directors. I didn't know about special effects. And it's a kind of a beautiful trauma that it's caused and it's led to a lifelong affair with it. Um, we talked, we didn't really talk too much about the enduring nature of, of Jaws, but I, I think why it lasts it's it's a tribal thing it's a fable uh somebody said on one of the documentaries sharks and dinosaurs kids love them and that's the reason it keeps coming back around we talked about uh on alien uh there was the perfect trailer the perfect poster the perfect title 
I think we can probably tick those boxes again and maybe we can even raise it because this one has an iconic score, an iconic box office, and it was just more of a phenomenon. Um, Patrick, I think you said you thought Alien was perfect and, uh, in, in spite of some technical things and, and I, I'd say the same about, about this one. I'd agree. Like in my eyes, I find it perfect flaws and all. Can you be perfect? <laughs> um, it, the, the film lays out, we talked about laying out a thesis, we say sometimes, and this one juggles tone very well. Horror and comedy and heart can all exist together if it's handled deftly enough. Uh, it's easily fumbled by other filmmakers. Um, I think it's become a bit of a cliche that a director must helm this overall singular tone, like something like The Exorcist has this singular note of dread. And I think Jaws is a superior film because it manages to to deal in comedy and drama and horror and weave it all together in a more entertaining way. I think it's easier to make a film that is one note of dread than it is to do what Spielberg did here. So I'm just having a go at Commode there if he's listening. I know he is. Um, <laughs> With his flappy hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I feel Spielberg's hands at work shaping it i think i talked about it on evil dead 2 when i was chatting with dev the idea that you can feel the filmmaker's hands at work um i can sense that he's sort of donating a piece of himself to the film the terror of being fired every day and he's just putting himself into it um with every with every shot um it is simplicity itself somebody said uh was it a cyborg was simplicity itself ebert said i think but i think jaws is too like just like the score it's deceptive it we didn't talk too much about the score but um one of my favorite moments galley is the barrels and that adventure score the pirate yeah yeah pirate music that he talked about that's one of my favorite things Mm. um but it's deceptively simple um i get a lot of funny looks when i tell people my favorite film is jaws but people who understand cinema get it immediately um it's uh, i'm i'm drawn to pieces of art that are universal and and loved all over the world by different cultures um and i mentioned the beatles and the phenomenon of of beatlemania and there's there's a jaws mania too it works in every country in every language it's a universal film and it's a universal film it's like in and two in two ways it's un- it can be under it can be understood as a silent film as gally you mentioned with your dad um it's it, there's art and commerce colliding um i mentioned that uh it i think in light of our fourth of july drink along which is coming up soon i'm going to try and watch it every year just the once and i'm going to make it a tradition on july 4th uh the july 4th weekend and i'm going to try and retain that build and release because if you watch something too many times you really can demythologize it and i'm going to try and strip it back to just being once once a year um i think i said it on aliens and die hard the film it's as good as a friendship to me it's a really incredibly meaningful film to me um it reminds me of a time in my life when i was completely 100 percent happy and every time i watch it i go back to those kind of i guess the preteen years when you, you don't have the responsibilities of adulthood and uh it feels it has that feel of being out on your bike with your friends and it's the et kind of 
thing. It's that Amblin era. Um, it's, it's as good as time travel. It transports me back. It's, it's very pleasurable. It never disappoints me. Uh, it always makes me laugh and, uh, thrills and, and entertains. I do maintain that it holds up. I watched it on Netflix recently. Um, yeah. And every time those credits are rolling and, and they're going back to shore, you know, you, I want to sort of reset it and watch it, watch it again. Um, finally to quote Quint, um, sometimes films go away and sometimes they don't go away and, uh, it's, it feels immortal now. <laughs> and Roy Scheider also had a good quote. He said that Bambi will go on forever. Snow White will go on forever. And so will Jaws. To me, it's the greatest. It's my favorite. Uh, I've swallowed my sandwiches whole. Um, over with your to... massive jaws. <laughs> with my massive jaws. Who's next? Well, I'll, I'll go next, Matt. Um, just, uh, Patrick, drop a, another chum marker there with you. For you. <laughs> um, very difficult to follow that up, Matt, um, because, uh, deeply personal summary, mm. um, but totally reflecting my own thoughts, to be honest with you. And, and actually, I'm just going to pull on the thread that you mentioned about people giving you a funny look when, when they ask you, you know, some people do ask me, you know, they know that we do the show. Um, I get some people that, uh, tweet me on a direct message and stuff. And, um, also just kind of people who listen to the show who I know through other, other avenues, they'll ask me my opinion on stuff. And they'll always ask like, Oh, what's your favorite film? Uh, I never really nail it down because it changes all the time, but mm. Jaws is always in rotation. And, you know, if I said Jaws or if I said aliens, like, it's almost like if you're into movies that other people in that space uh, feel compelled to pick something a little bit out there or a little bit like, oh, yeah, like a little bit more artistic. Mm. Nope, this this is art. Um, might be commercial, might be popularist, but God damn it, if it ain't great. There is no better version of this movie that I think would ever get made than the one that we got. Um you know, I love Deep Blue Sea. I love me some Rennie Harlan. Uh, a lovely tribute to Jaws. But that's, that's about, yeah, that's the second best shark movie that's ever been made, in my opinion. I like Shallow Waters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a shark movie, I guess, but it's a very different type of shark movie. Um, I suppose the lessons learned from Jaws are never the lessons that are, are contained within. So it's always like, let's focus on the shark. Let's focus on how do we make it believable? It's like, you know what? You don't need a believable shark because that film in 1975 didn't have one and everyone loved it. It's, it, it's, it's about, it's, a, it's about helming a tone, a mood and having characters and a setting and a premise that you can go with and take us on a journey. It's a hundred percent a recommendation for Jaws. Uh, if you haven't seen it, then God, I wish I were you. Like I'd love to go back to a time mm. when I've never seen it and I could watch it again for the first time. Please go out and seek it out. And if you haven't seen it for a long time, this is just a great film that you can watch with anybody. Uh, obviously parents, you know, there is an age limit, but I watched it super young and outside of just crippling me with fear for about 15 <laughs> years, I didn't turn out too bad. So you can watch this one. <laughs> you can watch this one with kids. Patrick, final thoughts on Jaws. Do you recommend it? to our listeners i do big time and i think you've both really eloquently and well said your parting thoughts i don't know what else to add um i found it this week very like fascinating and really quite um impressive on a technical level 
that we haven't spoken about too much, like the camera work on this. So just a parting bit about the camera work here and the editing and just how well I find this as a piece of storytelling and, and lean filmmaking. You know, it's really, really technically brilliant. I think Spielberg was right in surrounding himself with um, certain people, the, the DMP, Bill Butler. Uh, I think it looks great. And, and if Spielberg's got problems the, the, with the camera to film out at sea and all these, there's a shot upon the mast looking down over um, Brody's shoulder when he's looking down at the shark. That's How did they rig mm. that? That's amazing. Um, and the film looks really, really great. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a film that I think I said at the very beginning, I think I've taken for granted for many years. And part of my recommendation is just to say to people that, I think Jaws is like, I just thought it was a really good film and this week's maybe really rethink it and just appreciate it a lot more because I haven't watched it for years and I haven't watched it in a, in the sense of thought to watch it or revisit it and to, and to kind of, um, revel in it technically or as a, as a story or the characters. And I was really taken by all of that this week and it, it it's kind of grown in my, in the stature because it wasn't something I thought of as a favorite film or one of the best films ever made. And yeah, this week's been good. And this talk's been really good for, for making me appreciate it a lot more. And I think if you revisit it and I'd love people to see this even in revisiting for the first time, because I, I imagine it would get rescreened, especially three years time there'll be a 50th anniversary and if yeah. you can wait and see it make sure you see it in the cinema then i think it'd be really something to behold um because it stands up it's a timeless piece of cinema um i took that away this week quite a lot uh i i, I like the characters i i think it kind of zips along at such a pace that is it's terrifying and interesting and it's subtle and then it's not subtle and it's really balanced in humanity and life and horror. And, uh, I, I, I didn't really consider it a horror despite the, the, the musical tones and what everyone believes mm. there from John Williams's music. And I, a, another thing I took away this week was this is proper horror. This is a survival film and it is. Yeah, I really enjoyed revisiting it. Thank you. It was very good. Oh, great. Yeah, you 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 can hold that thanks and praise for when you get to Jaws too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about this one as a singular piece of art. Yeah, no, I've got a soft spot for Jaws too. I think you know. I know you have. I know you have, but it's not that uh, I agree with you on that one. <laughs> What's what? Well, I'm trying to think of the film. It, it, I'd love. Tell me if I'm wrong, but is it Jurassic Park: The Lost World where the Velociraptor? Talks to um Ham no, that's three. That's on the plane. That's three. Do that's we ever three. get to a point where a shark in a dream sequence talks to one of the characters? Because the sharks talk to one another in Deep Blue Sea too. Uh, that's yes. One. Um, I will say this, Patrick. Uh, dream sequence and sharks. You need to wait for the revenge. If the shark could talk, there is a scene in Jaws three that is akin to a chat. Uh, mm-hmm. through your glass plane window. Um, it roars yeah, in you, four, if you want to hear a shark roar. That's great. Yes, indeed. Um, Amazing. Rawr. Indeed. So all to look forward to. Uh, however, 
Matt, would you like to tell our listeners where they can find Jaws immediately? To rent in the USA, we have Alamo. It's a new one. Uh, Amazon, DirecTV, Google Play, Apple, Microsoft. It's everywhere. Voodoo, Java, YouTube. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you are in the UK, you can stream it on Prime Video <laughs> and uh, Virgin Media. And if well, Virgin you Media are in... To pay for- Amazon yeah. Prime's part of your subscription. Yep. A lot of these will, will be that. Uh, this is powered by Just Watch. And, uh, uh, if you're in South Korea, <laughs> don't know if any of you will be, you can currently stream it on Netflix. Uh, but I would recommend the Blu-ray. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of great documentaries, but if you are a cheapskate, you can go to rewindmoviecast.com and have a look at my playlist, which contains all of the Jaws documentaries. Uh, the Spielberg HBO one is excellent. It's not specific to Jaws, but it's also excellent. Does it have, um, in the teeth of Jaws, the BBC little 50 minute doc? Cause that was quite, I watched that and I thought, I found that really interesting. That's a good one. The shark is not working, um, is arguably the best. And I love the, the, the Laurent Buzero one, the original one that was on the, uh, the DVD, which I think is just called, called the making of Jaws. And if you, if you live on Martha's Vineyard, they have a Jaws fest where you can watch it in the water, uh, floating around while, while watching it on a big screen. That's my dream. I'd love to go and do that one day, but. <laughs> after oh, that. then we'll make it happen, Matt. <laughs> Send your money in now. Well, that, or, or someone needs to, you know, get me, turn me into Mayor, uh, Mayor Vaughan. Mayor Vaughan. Yeah, because you know how I refuse uh, any commercial ventures that are not our own. Um, mm. So next time Manscaped come down and ask us if if we'll uh, <laughs> take some money for some crappy adverts, yeah. maybe I'll say yes. I was working in the podcast's best interests. <laughs> <laughs> next time, uh, just when you thought it was safe, uh, there's going to be a, a drink along movie commentary for Jaws. When hopefully the gang will be back together and, uh, there'll be guest appearances from the dead Alex Kintner, uh, Jeffrey Voorhees <laughs> and, uh, who's wishing us an, a, a jawsome 4th of July. And, uh, it's, yeah, th- there's also going to be a Jeffrey Kramer cameo. Um, one of our favorites and, uh, yeah. So if you want to go to rewindmoviecast.com, you can check out the drinking game rules and you can choose your category. Do you want to play as the chief? Will you play as Hooper? Or are you certifiable? Will you play as, uh, as Quint with his apricot brandy? Um, yeah, all of the rules will be over on the blog and, uh, hopefully you can join us for our first drinking game rewind commentary. Yes. Details to come on that one, listeners, because I don't know if we're going to do it over Twitch or some other form of medium, but we'll, we'll find a way. Don't yeah. worry. Details to come. Um, those of you that are, are interested in sending Matt to Martha's Vineyard, um, <laughs> we do have a merchandise site. So please do go to Devlin Does Drawing where you'll find t-shirts, stickers, bags, Shower caps, apparently, <laughs> and, and and shower curtains. Related to Jaws, there there are two new Jaws ones. There's a new uh, Quint sticker and a uh, drinking game tote bag. Those of you that enjoy what we do, please like, subscribe, share, spread the gospel, team. That's all we ask. So, yep, that's pretty much it. Outside of that, we don't we don't go in for the old capitalist things. So, all of this, I think we're now up to 86 episodes, all free of charge, all absolute 
time sponges. So get yourself involved. I would just like to also thank those listeners that have reached out uh, since the last episode. Thank you very much. You know who you are, and we appreciate your support. And that is it, team. So I think we should say our goodbyes, yes? Yeah, husband's all right, Mr. Brody. He's fishing. He's caught a couple of stripers. We'll be ringing them for dinner. We won't be long. We haven't seen anything yet. Over and out. It's Gally in Glasgow signing out. Stay safe, everyone. Don't forget the colour TV. It's Patrick in London. Want to get drunk and fool around? It's Matt in South Korea. Ah, uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. It came on a summer's day, bringing gifts from far away, but it made it clear it couldn't stay. No horror was his home. Say, she hears them say, Brandy, you're a fine girl.